Chapter Ten of the Mohawk Valley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Mohawk Valley: Its Legends and Its History by W. Max Reed. Chapter Ten, in the Old Town of Amsterdam. In order to ascertain the names of the first purchasers of land in the city and town of Amsterdam. I have found it necessary to go back to the township of Schenectady and its first patent. This patent granted sixteen miles, on both sides of the river, above and below the present city, of the Great Flats, or Mohawk Flats, as the lowlands were then called. These flats, being cleared and free from timber and of very rich soil, were all ready for the plow and eagerly sought for by the settlers. At the time of the first settlement, the land immediately surrounding the stockade was divided into house lots and bow lands, which were apportioned to each of the fourteen settlers. Later, the hindmost lands were taken up as farms, and about 1680 and subsequent to that date, the great flats were disposed of to others who wished to locate near the settlement. Gradually, the settlers crept up along the river until they reached the limit of the Schenectady patent. At this extreme limit on the north side, we found the twenty acres granted Geraldus Camphor or Comfort, April twenty-second, 1703. Only twenty acres of flat land was conveyed by this grant, but it was generally understood that the settler could take as much woodland in the rear as he cared to appropriate. Next came the lands of Philip Groat at Cranesville, formerly called Klaas Gravenschuk, or by the natives, Adriusha. This included all the flats and islands between Lewis Creek and Avaskill, about one mile, and as far north as he should choose to take. This patent was issued by Governor Dongan in 1687 to Hendrik Kyler for flatlands and uplands at Klaas Gravenschuk. After Kyler's death, Anne Kyler, his widow, and John, his eldest son, sold the same to Karen Hansom Toll for a hundred and eighty pounds, three hundred and sixty dollars in those days. Philip Grote bought this land in 1715 of Toll, and was succeeded by his son Lewis. It remained in the Grote family until within a few years. It is now in possession of Francis Morris. Lewis Grote, about 1798, in his testimony before the commission appointed to settle the dispute between the proprietors of the Schenectady and Cayoteroceros patents, said that Comfort's patent extended west to the creek on which Groat's mill stood, Lewis Creek. Comfort was living as late as 1720. Lord Cornbury, governor of the province, in 1703, granted Comforter Camphor a patent for twenty acres of land and the hindermost woodland, as the land back of the flat was then called. In 1707, Comfort conveyed this land to Carol Hansen Toll, who conveyed it to his son-in-law, Johann Van Epps. It is said that at this time Toll owned all of the flats on the north side of the Mohawk, west of Schenectady, and east of Philip Grote's place, Adriusha, 
on the south side of the river the same method was pursued until we came to the Willigenvlacht, Willow Flats. Pieter Danielse van Olinda's name is found in the petition for the Schenectady Charter in 1663 and is one of the few who wrote his own name. Cornelius Antonis van Slyke, alias Broer Cornelius, is said to have married a Mohawk Indian woman by whom he had several children, three sons, Jacques, Martin, and Cornelius, and two daughters, Hileti and Leah. He died in 1676. Jacques received grants from the Indians as his right from his mother, the Mohawk woman. Pieter van Olinda, spoken of above, married Hileti Cornelis van Slyke, the Mohawk half-breed, through whom he received valuable grants of land, among which was half of the Willow Flats below Port Jackson, which was occupied by their descendants until within a few years. This land was east of and adjoining the old Phillips place at the two locks about opposite Cranesville. He died in 1715, leaving the Willows to Jacob Van Olinda, who married Ava, daughter of Klaus de Graaf. Hileti, though born and brought up among the Mohawks near Canajahari, Indian Castle, was soon separated from them and received the rudiments of a Christian education in Albany and Schenectady. She made an excellent use of her advantages and is spoken of as an estimable woman. Her story is very interesting. She was born of a Christian father, Van Slyke, and an Indian mother of the Mohawk tribes. Her mother remained in the country and lived among the Mohawks, and she lived with her the same as Indians lived together. Her mother would never listen to anything about Christians, as it was against her heart from an inward, unfounded hate. As Hileti sometimes went among the whites to trade, some of the Christians took a fancy to the girl, discovering more resemblance to the Christians than the Indians, and wished to take her and bring her up, but her mother would not let her go. The little daughter had no disposition to go at first, but she felt a great inclination and love in her heart to those who spoke to her about Christ and the Christian religion. Her mother observed it and grew to hate her and finally drove her from her forest home. She went to those who had solicited her to come so long. She had a particular desire to learn to read and finally made her profession and was baptized. Philip Philipsy de Moore married Elizabeth, daughter of Harmon Gansvert, of Albany, about 1685, and soon after took up his residence in the township of Schenectady. He owned or leased a portion of the sixth flat on the north side of the river, next east of the Comfort Flat. In 1689, he exchanged with Klaus Wilhelms von Kompernall for the west half of the Willingen Flat, lying on the south side of the river about one mile above philip groat's farm which lay on the north side this was the other half of the willow flats occupied by pieter van olinda it is said of philip philipsy that when the news of the massacre of schenectady reached the settlers along the river he fled with his family to the woods and lay concealed until the french and indians fearing retaliation from the aroused Dutchmen and their friends, 
the Mohawks, fled to Canada, with the settlers in hot pursuit. With Phillips during this season of horrors was his baby boy, Lewis, who, when a man and engaged as a farmer and Indian trader, sold Catherine Weisenberg to William Johnson. The true story, as handed down in the traditions of the Phillips family, is interesting, even though stripped of the usual embellishment of the stories of J. R. Sims. It is said that about 1738, during one of Lewis Phillips's periodical visits to New York for the purpose of replenishing his supplies, he met among other emigrants who had lately arrived by the slow-sailing vessels of those early days, a young German girl who importuned him to purchase her for service in the usual manner by paying the captain of the vessel for her passage, which in this instance amounted to sixteen pounds. After considering the matter some time, he concluded to pay the sixteen pounds required and take the girl home with him. This he did, and upon arrival she was duly installed as servant for this little family on the frontier. This servant girl was Catherine Weisenberg, who in a short time attracted the attention of William Johnson. It seems that Johnson was willing to pay the amount that Phillips had paid for her, sixteen pounds, and Phillips was willing that he should, and he got the gal. Mr. John Hubbs, a respected farmer in the town of Florida, whose ancestors bought the farm he now occupies of William Johnson, being part of the Sir Peter Warren estate, tells the following story about Sir William and his propensity for practical joking. One day, while yet he was living at Fort Johnson, an Irishman, presuming on the fact of being of the same nationality, applied to him for a job. They were standing under the trees in the yard at Fort Johnson, through which ran the Kayaderos Creek. "'What kind of a job do you want?' asked Sir William. "'What can you do?' "'Anything, sir,' said the Celt. Sir William looked at him a moment with a twinkle in his eye, and then said, pointing to the rippling stream at their feet, "'Do you see that creek?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Well, I want you to follow that stream up through the forest until you come to an Indian fishing. If you find that he has caught any fish, bring them to me.' "'All right, sir,' said the Irishman and straightway started up the creek through the forest. After following the stream for some distance, he came in sight of an Indian fishing in a little pool in the Hell Hollow ravine, with a good-sized string of fish by his side. Obeying the order of Sir William, the Irishman approached the Indian, picked up the fish, and started to return. As soon as the red man recovered from his surprise, he sprang to his feet and seized the string of speckled beauties also. Then came a war of words that neither could understand, which finally led to blows and a rough-and-tumble fight, which resulted in the Irishman being badly beaten and the Indian marching home with the fish. It is said that he concluded to look elsewhere for employment. It would seem that Adam Vroman, who made such a strong defense of his house at the burning of Schenectady, 
and is said to be an ancestor of the late Mrs. Isaac Morris, the mother of Abram Vroman, John F. and Charles H. C. Morris of this city, and Isaac Morris of Johnstown, was granted land on both sides of the Mohawk River at this place, as follows. Whereas rode ye Makos, Mohawk, Sachem for diverse considerations, hath about three years ago, 1685, granted him, Adam Vroman, two flats or plains upon both sides of ye Marques River above Hendrick Kyler's land, Klaus Gravenhoek, Cranesville, containing eleven morgans, which said land doth lie near ye stone house, Chuctanunda, so called by ye Indians, as ye go to the Makas country and forty acres of woodland adjoining them. The grant is further described as being on both sides of the Mohawk River west of Klaus Gravenhook, as Cranesville was then called, on the south side ten morgans, twenty acres, opposite a place called by Indians Chuctanunda, that is ye stone house being a hollow rock on ye river bank where ye Indians generally lie under when they travel to and from their country. The other pieces on the north side of the river, one a little higher than ye said hollow rock or stone house, at a place called by ye natives Syajanadawad, and so eastward down the river so as to comprehend twelve morgans, twenty-four acres. The other, just above the marked tree of Henrik Kyler, the owner of Klaus Gravenhoek, one morgan and three or four little islands. In trying to locate the grant of the Mohawk Indian Road to Adam Vroman, I have taken the trouble to examine the banks of the Mohawk from Klaus Gravenhoek up to Fort Johnson, and the only place where cliffs or overhanging rocks are to be found is at a point by the NYCRR Freight House and from the Chuctanunda Creek up to the Atlas Mill. Back of the old Bronson Mansion and the site of the W.U. Chase's blacksmith shop are to be found the only shelving rocks, and also large masses of rock that have fallen from the cliff above, indicating that at some previous period this point has been a Chuctanunda, a stone house or hollow or overhanging rock, where ye Indians generally lie under when they travel to and from their country. Now, in regard to the flats spoken of in this grant, an examination of the south side of the river discloses the fact that the first flat west of Willow Flats is the ground now occupied by the Fifth Ward. The only islands not otherwise accounted for are the four or five small Bronson Islands and the twelve Morgans, 24 acres, must have been the Bronson Flats in the western part of the city of Amsterdam, together with 40 acres of woodland, and undoubtedly covered the site of the village of Amsterdam. This leads to another thought. We have been taught that the meaning of Chuctanunda was twin sisters, and that it was applied to the north and south Chuctanunda because they entered the Mohawk nearly opposite each other. It is also said to mean stone in the water. Assuming that the definition of Chuctanunda, stone houses, hollow rocks, or overhanging cliffs, 
is correct and from my authority i do not question it it gives a different significance to the name chuctanunda as applied to our creeks that word is the name of the creek only secondarily as the creeks near the chuctanunda the chuctanunda creeks the resting place or stone houses being paramount in the minds of the indians and the creeks of secondary importance except as connected with their chuctanunda the only overhanging rocks on the mohawk this side of fort hunter until you reach the conglomerate cliffs near hoffman's ferry the discovery of the old vroman grant is valuable in two ways it establishes a fact that has not been recorded in local history which is that land was taken up in what is now the city of amsterdam in the seventeenth century and brings to light an important rendezvous of the indians that had not been suspected that is the chuctanunda chuctanunda it establishes the fact that our two creeks have never been named by the indians other than to call the creeks near the chuctanunda the creeks of the chuctanunda although the name applied by the white man the twin sisters is truly beautiful and appropriate if you will take the trouble to go down to the bank of the mohawk under the culvert west of bridge street and walk along under the overhanging rocks to the west you will be convinced of the appropriateness of the term juctananda or stone house about one hundred feet from the culvert you will come to a mass of rock that is familiar to every boy who has played on the river bank for the last half century it seems to have been originally a piece of rock perhaps twenty feet square which from its texture must have been the upper course or ledge of the cliff on which formerly stood the welcome you chase blacksmith shop and the first masonic lodge in amsterdam this immense rock is broken in five pieces and remains where it fell years ago about two hundred feet farther up the stream is the cliff on which stands the old bronson mansion the upper ledge of which projects so far that twenty men could lie under its shadow and be protected from the weather this stone house is divided into two parts the farthermost part being hid from sight by a projecting rock passing this rock you find a spacious open room in the center of which from under twenty feet of solid rock runs a bubbling spring of water under these rocks for ages the storm-tossed savage found shelter from the tempest or a temporary home on his fishing or warlike expeditions later it undoubtedly sheltered the white and red boatmen overtaken by night with their cargoes of merchandise or produce from the farms abram vroman morris spoken of above may well be called a self-made man and his life is closely woven with the rise and progress of the city of amsterdam he never was a poor boy in comparison to the waif described in one of john b goff's stories who when asked what kind of food he liked best replied a raw turnip or a potato with the heart in it because it is more fillin and stays in the stomach longer still he had his own struggles and learned early to take care of himself and by his pluck and energy secured a competence in early manhood he likes to tell of his life as a clerk for william reed who kept a general store 
formerly situated on the land at the southeast corner of Main and Bridge Streets. In those early days, a country store was expected to keep everything, from a paper of pins to a barrel of flour, and from a box of pills to a barrel of whiskey. As Mr. Reed's store was no different from every country store, a barrel of whiskey, a cask of wine, and a keg of brandy were always in evidence in the rear of the store. Storekeepers were allowed to sell spirits by measure, but not by the glass. One day a worthless bummer sport came in and asked for a quart of whiskey, at the same time producing a bottle to put it in. The proprietor filled the same with whiskey and handed it to the WBS, who placed it in his pocket, saying he would pay for it tomorrow. But on Mr. Reed's refusing to trust him, he took another bottle, like the first, out of his pocket, filled with water, which the proprietor, supposing it to be the bottle he had just filled, took and emptied into the barrel of whiskey, while the WBS went off with his bottle of whiskey without paying for it. Query, was anyone a loser in the transaction? An attempt to work the same scheme a few days later resulted in the discovery of the game and a rapid exit of the schemer. Isaac Morris, the father of Abram Roman Morris, formerly kept quite an extensive shoe factory for that period, situated on the old Baptist Church lot on Market Street, employing as many as twelve workmen. This building was subsequently removed to a vacant lot on Spring Street and was known as the Sandy Maginus House which was afterward torn down to make room for the dirch block next to the Pythian temple. Mrs. Isaac Morris's maiden name was Jane Vroman. Like Van Corlear and Wemple, the name of Vroman is prominent in the history of the Mohawk Valley, but it is only today, with the aid of Pearson's Schenectady Patent and Sims's Frontiersman of New York, together with valuable information from Abram Vroman Morris, that I feel able to trace the lineage of the Vroman family back to Holland. It is recorded that in the early part of the 17th century, three brothers named Pieter, Jacob, and Hendrik Mies Vroman came to New Netherland from Holland. Pieter and Jacob settled in Albany and left no male descendants. Hendrick, after living in Kinderhook and Steen Rabbi, Lansingburg, removed to Schenectady in 1677. At the massacre of Schenectady, February 9, 1690, Hendrick and his son Bartholomew and his two Negro slaves were killed and burned, leaving two sons, Adam and Jan, to inherit his estate. Adam was born in Holland in 1649 and in 1670 bound himself for two years to Cornelius Vandenberg of Albany County to learn the millwright's trade. In 1683 he built a mill on the Sandkill, east of Schenectady, where the Brandywine Mill now stands. In 1690, when Schenectady was destroyed, he saved his life by his bravery in defending his house, although his first wife, Angeltje, with her infant child, was killed, and his two sons, Voter and Barent, were carried away to Canada. He married three times, 
his second wife being the widow of Jacques Cornelius Van Slyke, and the third, Gretje Takels Hamstraat. He had nine sons and four daughters. He seems to have been a large landowner, for besides numerous lots in Schenectady, he was granted a patent for six hundred acres of land in Schoharie in 1714, which was occupied by his son Pieter and his descendants. On March 30, 1726, he obtained a new Indian title for 1,400 acres of flats known as Vroman's Land in the Schoharie Valley. On a previous page, I stated that in 1688, he was granted an Indian title for land comprising the present fifth ward of Amsterdam and the Bronson Flats and woodlands in this vicinity. It would seem as though Pieter was the only one of his sons who followed his father to the Schoharie, some of them living in Albany, others in Schenectady. Pieter died in 1771, leaving twelve children, one of whom was Abraham Vroman, who persisted in writing his name Abram. He was the father of Mrs. Isaac Morris, Sr., and the grandfather of Abram Vroman Morris, who is his namesake. J. R. Sims writes at considerable length of the ravages of the Indians in what is known in history as the Massacre of Schoharie in August 1780. He says in one place, The invaders, consisting of seventy-three Indians, almost naked, and five Tories, Benjamin Baycraft, Frederick Sager, Walter Allett, one Thompson, and a mulatto, commanded by Captain Brant, approached Vroman's land in the vicinity of the upper fort about ten o'clock in the morning. They entered the valley on the west side of the river, above Onistagrawa, in three places, one party coming down from the mountain near the late residence of Charles Watson, another near the Jacob Haynes place, then the resident of Captain Tunis Vroman, and the third near the dwelling of the late Harmanus Vroman, at that time the residence of Colonel Peter Vroman, who chanced to be with his family in the middle fort. Captain Hager, being absent, the command of the upper fort devolved on Captain Tunis Vroman. Captain Vroman, on the morning in question, having returned home to secure some wheat, and Lieutenant Ephraim Vroman, to whom the command next belonged, having gone to his farm soon after Captain Vroman left, he left Lieutenant Harper with less than a dozen men to defend the post. Mrs. Ephraim Vroman also returned to her home to do her washing. It is said that on the morning Captain Tunis Vroman and his sons drew two loads of wheat to the barracks. The grain had not all been pitched from the wagon when he beheld approaching a party of hostile savages. He descended from the barrack, not far from which he was tomahawked and scalped, and had his throat cut by a Schoharie Indian named John, who stood upon his shoulders while tearing off his scalp. His wife, while washing in the farmhouse, was surprised and stricken down. After the first blow from the tomahawk, she remained erect, but a second blow laid her dead at the feet of the Indian, who scalped her, and three of the oldest boys, with the blacks, were made captives. His son, Peter, would probably have escaped had not one of the blacks made known his place of concealment. 
Trying to escape, he was pursued by the Tory Bearcraft, who caught him and, placing his legs between his own, bent his head back and cut his throat, after which he scalped him and hung his body across a fence. Above, I have told of Lieutenant Ephraim Vroman and his wife leaving the fort early in the morning for their farmhouse. An Indian, called Seth's Henry, led a party of the enemy to this dwelling. On hearing the alarm, Vroman ran to the house, caught up his infant child, and fled into a cornfield, followed by his wife leading her little daughter. He seated himself against the trunk of a large apple tree, with his wife concealed a few rods from him in the thrifty corn. His family would no doubt have remained undiscovered had not Mrs. Vroman become alarmed and risen up with a cry in low Dutch, Ephraim, Ephraim, where are you? Have you got the child? Instantly, almost, a bullet from Seth's Henry rifle pierced her body, and as she lay in the ground he tomahawked and scalped her, and the Tory Baycraft killed her little daughter with a stone and drew off her scalp. It is said that when the body of Mrs. Vroman was found, it was evident that she had partially revived and tried to staunch the flow of blood from her breast, first with her cap, afterwards with earth, having dug quite a hole in the ground. Adam A. Vroman fled from the Indians to the upper fort, keeping the enemy at bay with his pistol when they came too near him. On his arrival at the fort, he was asked how he escaped when he answered, I pulled foot. After that, to the day of his death, he was called Pullfoot Vroman. His wife was made a prisoner. Simon Vroman, his wife and three-year-old son, were taken prisoner also. Abraham, or Abram Vroman, the grandfather of Abram V. Morris, had a narrow escape from death or capture. Being in Vroman's land with a wagon, on which was a hay-rack, he drove down through the valley and picked up several citizens. At Judge Swart's he shouted to Mrs. Swart, "'Cornelia, jump into my wagon. The Indians are upon us.' She ran to the house, snatched her infant child from its cradle, and reached the wagon with her husband just as the Indians appeared at the dwelling. Vroman, who had a powerful team, did not stop to open the gates, but drove the horses directly against and over them, and was fortunate enough to outstrip the red savages and escape to the middle fort. At the time Seth's Henry killed Mrs. Ephraim Vroman, another powerful Indian, who was directed by her call to her husband's place of concealment, approached him and thrust a spear at his body, which he parried, and the infant in his arms smiled. Another pass was made and parried, and the child again smiled. At the third blow of the spear, which was also warded off, the little innocent laughed aloud at the supposed sport, which awakened the sympathy of the savage, and he made Vroman a prisoner, also his sons and German workmen. John Vroman, his wife, and five children were also captured. The destroyers of Vroman's land proceeded in the afternoon about fifteen miles and encamped for the night. The scalps of the slain were stretched upon hoops and dried in the presence of the relative prisoners. 
After traveling about six miles, Brant, who was in charge, permitted the wife of John Vroman, with her infant and one taken from Ephraim, to return to the settlement. Colonel Peter Vroman, by his energetic defense of the middle fort, saved it from capture by Sir John Johnson and his savages. Of course, Sims has many tales to tell of other families of Schoharie who suffered death or capture by the savages, but my purpose at this time is to follow the fortunes of the descendants of Adam and Peter Vroman, and to trace the lineage of the mother of Abram V. Morris as follows. Hendrick Meese Vroman, Adam Vroman, Peter Vroman, Abram or Abraham Vroman, Jane Vroman, the wife of Isaac Morris, Sr. Isaac Morris's children were as follows. Lewis, Abram V., Margaret, Tunis, Charles H. C., John F., James Stewart, and Isaac Morris, Jr. End of chapter 10 Recording by Roger Moline